American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. My dear listener, you asked me once if I had told you all there was to know about Horemheb and Amana. And while I can honestly say I have told you the truth, I may not have told you all of it. I am old now, Frodo. I mean, listener. I'm not the same historian I once was. I think it is time I told you what really happened. It began, well, it began as you might expect. In a temple in Egypt, there came a pharaoh. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 166, Restoration 3, Re-Restoring. Today, we explore the other half of Horemheb's relationship with the Amana rulers. Last time, we saw the pharaoh deconstruct the monuments of Akhenaten. His builders took down shrines established by that pharaoh at Karnak, and they used the bricks for Horemheb's great pylons. That is an important story, but it's not the whole story. Today we see the other aspects of this project, as Horemheb demolishes the work of several kings to build his monuments. This episode comes to you on behalf of DKK, TV, and Rebecca, who joined up on Patreon.com for an entire year. Thank you for your support, folks. It is far too generous. May Aten shining in the sky and Amun, ruling from the hidden places, make your temples magnificent and stand for eternity. Before we start, this episode comes with a disclaimer regarding chronology. The reign of Horemheb is still poorly understood in terms of the dates. Even the length of his reign is a matter of debate. Some scholars favour a short reign, approximately 14 years. Others favour a longer reign, 27 years, or longer. I will cover all of that at the appropriate time, but for now, it's important to know that the events I describe are not necessarily in order. When I discuss monuments or projects undertaken by Horemheb, I am presenting them in a vague narrative. But, for historians, the sequence of events is difficult to pin down, Some of these projects and decisions may have taken place over several years, perhaps even decades. So please bear that in mind. If I describe Horemheb's work at Karnak, or his relationship with earlier kings, these policies and projects may have evolved significantly over a long time. So with that in mind, let's begin. Horemheb and the Amano Rulers, Part 2.
Horemheb's agents deconstructed the monuments of Akhenaten, at least the ones at Karnak. Other buildings from that pharaoh may have been fine, but the Aten shrines at Karnak were now gone. Their talatat were removed and used in Horemheb's pylons. Akhenaten's monuments get all the attention, but excavations in those pylons revealed other blocks from other monuments. Horemheb's agents took bricks from several different places and several different kings. One set of blocks belonged to Amunhotep III. They seemed to be random bits of masonry, perhaps material that had fallen from earlier monuments. Nothing too extreme, just a few pieces here and there. The point is, Horemheb's builders also took blocks from Amunhotep III and used them in the pylons. Besides the Amunhotep blocks, another set of masonry came from a much older monument. In the ninth pylon, on the southern axis of Karnak, archaeologists recovered a set of Middle Kingdom blocks, specifically pieces of a monument belonging to King Senusaret I. Senusaret I was a famous ruler of Dynasty XII, who reigned more than 500 years before Horemheb. King Senusaret had erected a shrine somewhere at Karnak. This building seems to be a bark chapel, a small house meant for the god's portable boat, or bark. Priests would carry the bark in processions, and while making the rounds, they would stop at small chapels like this one. Blocks from this chapel came forth from the ninth pylon, established by Horemheb, and filled with other masonry. It seems that Horemheb's builders demolished Senusaret's chapel, and used it in the pylon. Archaeologists recovered many blocks from Senusaret's chapel. Not all of them, but in the end, they were able to reconstruct two walls of the monument. This suggests that the shrine maybe had collapsed over the centuries, and Horemheb's builders reused the surviving blocks. Or perhaps the shrine had been partially demolished by another king, and Horemheb's builders used what was left. Either way, enough survives to make it clear that Horemheb had taken down part of this shrine. And like the masonry of Amunhotep III or Akhenaten, the blocks of Senusaret went into the pylon. Thirdly, there was Ai, Horemheb's predecessor, possibly his rival. As pharaoh, Horemheb dealt with Ai quite casually. Simply put, he replaced Ai wherever he appeared. King Ai had only ruled a few years, maybe four or five in total, so his monuments were few. Some additions to Luxor Temple, a few statues, and a memorial temple on the West Bank. That probably made Horemheb's job quite easy. Wherever I appeared in art or statuary, Horemheb's agents erased the cartouches, and they put Horemheb's name in their place. The king effectively took his predecessor's monuments for his own. It was a simple job that maybe took a few months. Finally, there was Tutankhamun the boy king, the ruler whose government Horemheb had led. As pharaoh, Horemheb had a complicated relationship with Tutankhamun. At first, he was quite respectful of the king. Later, though, that changed. 
Let's find out why. King Tutankhamun, or his government, had established various monuments, especially in the vicinity of Karnak and Luxor. The most prominent was a temple called Hut Nebkeperura, or the enclosure of Nebkeperura, Tutankhamun. That temple is gone now, but archaeologists have identified blocks at various places, including the pylons of Hormheb. Archaeologists have recovered pieces of the Hut Nebkeperura. Reconstructing it, scholars have an idea of what the monument probably looked like. Tutankhamun's enclosure, or Hut, probably had a large square court lined with columns. Those columns and the walls bore images of the young king. Tutankhamun appeared before the gods, riding in his chariot, and even going to battle. The Hot Nebkeperura, the enclosure of Tutankhamun, was probably a grand affair, one dedicated to the ruler. After Tutankhamun's death, King Ai had made a few additions to that temple. Mostly, he had added images of himself alongside Tutankhamun. The elderly king had appeared in a supporting role, as if he were Tutankhamun's advisor, or even his father. This project transformed the Hot Nebkeperura into something like a Hot Nebkeperura and I. That is how it stood when Horemheb came to power. Horemheb's attitude to the Hot Nebkeperura is interesting, and it forms a microcosm of his attitude to Tutankhamun. At first, it seems that Horemheb planned to carry on using this temple for its original purpose. He would make a few modifications, but nothing too drastic. As far as Egyptologists can reconstruct, Horemheb probably erased the cartouches of Ai. His agents removed Ai's name, Kepa Keperura, wherever it appeared. But this wasn't vandalism. They did the work carefully, removing the glyphs and smoothing out the stone. The plan, it seems, was to carve new hieroglyphs where the name of Ai had stood. What would they carve? Why, the name of Horemheb, of course. At least, we think that's what they intended. For some reason, the sculptors never got around to the phase two of that project. Instead, while the cartouches of Ai were still empty, Horemheb changed his policy. At some point, we are not sure when, Horemheb decided to demolish the Hot Nebkeperura. His agents dismantled the monument, block by block, just as they had done with the temples of Akhenaten. And like Akhenaten's monuments, the builders used the masonry from Tutankhamun's temple in Horemheb's pylons. Archaeologists working at Karnak found blocks of the Hot Nebkeperura alongside those of other kings. And thanks to the work of scholars like Raymond Johnson and Mark Gabold, we can see the traces of what Horemheb was doing, and perhaps we can reconstruct his thinking. Apparently, Horemheb intended to honour the legacy of Tutankhamun. When he first took power, he carried on that king's works. Fair enough, those were Horemheb's works as well. Thanks to his time leading Tutankhamun's government, any monument of the boy king was, at least partially, also a monument of Horemheb. So at the outset, 
it seems like Horam have intended to keep Tutankhamun's memory alive. The new pharaoh would erase I and replace his name wherever it appeared, but Tutankhamun would remain intact. Then, something changed. Later in his reign, Horemheb decided that, no, Tutankhamun also had to go. The king would not erase Tutankhamun, not specifically, but he would dismantle the temple, the Hot Nebkeperura. This is a curious decision, and the significance is still unclear. At the very least, historians can say that Horemheb's attitude towards Tutankhamun changed over time. Initially, he honoured and respected the king, as you should for your predecessor. But at some point during his reign, Horemheb decided to suppress the memory of Tutankhamun. He also decided to usurp Tutankhamun's other monuments. Across Egypt, Tutankhamun's name appeared on temples, art, and statues. Cartouches proclaimed his name, Nebkeperu-Ra, for anyone who could read, and Tutankhamun's profile was visible on walls and great statues. That's how it was at the start of Horemheb's reign, but by the end, the new king had claimed almost all of those images. A good example of Horemheb's usurpation would be the statues of Tutankhamun. Figures of the king decorated various temples in Karnak, Luxor, and the West Bank. Perhaps the most famous statue is the colossal figure standing in Chicago's Oriental Institute. There, a figure officially identified as Tutankhamun gazes out from the centre of a museum hall. But on the belt buckle, the cartouche tells another story. It reads, Josa Keperura, Setep Enra. The Colossi of Tutankhamun are now the Colossi of Hormheb. Another example can be found in Karnak. When tourists visit, they will often stop to gaze on a pair of statues depicting a king and queen. These are Tutankhamun and Ankesen Amun, appearing in the guise of Amun and Amunet. Today, tour guides will introduce them as Tutankhamun and Ankesen Amun. But if you go round the back, the hieroglyphs tell another story. On the back of these statues, columns of glyphs now record the monuments established by the king, but the king is no longer Tutankhamun. Instead, the cartouches have been altered. Now, they read Hor-em-heb. So it seems like Hor-em-heb took over the statues and images of Tutankhamun. In most cases, figures of the king now bear the name of his successor. It's a curious change. Perhaps the most egregious example of usurpation comes from a temple, Tutankhamun's largest monument, or at least his largest one still standing. Throughout Tutankhamun's reign, royal builders had labored at the temple of Luxor, Ipet Resit. There, they had erected a magnificent hall of columns. Fourteen enormous pillars line the central path of Luxor Temple. You can't miss them when you're visiting. They tower above, their capitals shaped like papyrus plants. And around these columns, the hall's four walls bore images of the magnificent Opet festival. I described that festival and those images in episode 146. 
But what I didn't mention is that these pictures, all of them, have been usurped. Today, you will not find the name of Tutankhamun in these scenes. Instead, they are all attributed to Hor M. Heb. On the walls and columns of Luxor's grand colonnade, royal agents replaced the names of Tutankhamun with those of Horemheb. Surprisingly, they didn't erase Tutankhamun's cartouches first. Instead of chiseling away the hieroglyphs and smoothing back the stones, the sculptors simply carved Horemheb's glyphs over the top. They cut away the empty bits, but if you look closely today, you will see that Horemheb's hieroglyphs still have lines from the earlier names. You can read the traces of Tutankhamun beneath Horemheb. It seems the royal agents were a bit sloppy. This goes for the hieroglyphs, and it also goes for the art. Surprisingly, the sculptors did not bother changing the faces of Tutankhamun. Although the cartouches say Horemheb, the royal figures still have Tutankhamun's distinctive profile. Perhaps that wasn't a problem. This hall used to be enclosed, shrouded in darkness, and you wouldn't necessarily notice in the flicker of candlelight. Still, it's interesting to see where royal sculptors drew the line, or where Horemheb's overseers were skimping on the project. Change the cartouches, sure, but don't bother erasing them. Just carve new glyphs over the top. As for the figures? Eh, leave them. No one will know the difference. As a result, Horemheb's usurpation is remarkably easy to spot. Clearly, the king can't have been too concerned with this project, or we would expect it to be more thorough. As long as the names said Horemheb and the images were passable at a glance, that seems to have been satisfactory. Officially, Horemheb was now the owner of the Grand Colonnade, and all of Tutankhamun's work at Luxor Temple. Just don't look too closely. Finally, after the statues and temples, Horemheb also usurped Tutankhamun's restoration. For most of his reign, the boy king's government had worked to repair temples damaged by Akhenaten's agents. The restoration project was a massive undertaking. Horemheb claimed it for himself. Over the years, Tutankhamun's sculptors had undertaken a huge task. They needed to repair the names and images of Amun, which Akhenaten had erased. That was easier said than done. In most cases, the damage was too deep to just buff it out. Instead, the masons needed to fully erase the image, smoothing back the stone. Then, they carved a whole new image in place of the old one. They did a good job overall, but they also made a few unusual decisions. For example, the new images of Amun tended to be smaller than the original ones. Traditionally, the pharaohs and the gods would appear the same size. But following Akhenaten's vandalism, Tutankhamun's artists re-carved the figures of Amun at a slightly smaller scale. Their reasons for doing this are unclear. Maybe it was easier to do it that way, rather than trying to replicate the original. Or maybe they were trying to emphasise that they had restored the monument. If the change was visibly different, then anyone gazing upon it could see that Tutankhamun had done this. 
We can only speculate. What is clear is that Horam have decided to re-carve some of these images, again, at some point during his reign, maybe the later phase, King Horemheb initiated a re-restoration project. He sent masons to various temples to redo Tutankhamun's carvings. These are quite noticeable if you look closely enough. For example, on the sixth pylon of Karnak, a large figure of Amun appears. The god stands before Tutmos III, that legendary ruler, and this image of Amun had suffered attack under Akhenaten. The heretics' agents chiseled the figure of Amun away. Then, Tutankhamun's agents restored it, but at a slightly smaller scale. Finally, Horemheb's agents returned to the pylon, and they re-restored it at the original size. As a result, you can still see the ghost of the smaller Amun within the body of the larger. It's not a huge difference, but if you know what you're looking for, it's quite noticeable. Why did Horemheb do this? The phenomenon of re-carving is quite distinct. Scholars call it secondary restoration, and it happens a few times after the Amana period. The practice seems to show up whenever a ruler is trying to establish themselves as a restorer. If a king, like Horemheb, wanted to seem like a pious ruler, then they might redo an earlier restoration. In some cases, they seem to be upgrading or improving earlier restoration work. Which may not sound impressive, but there is a logic to it. Since they were investing resources in the temples, the kings were eager to claim credit for embellishing the god's house. This applied to restorations as well. Whenever agents had re-carved an image, they would also add a text, a set of hieroglyphs that proclaimed the names of the pharaoh, and they would say how, quote, the king made it as a monument for his father, Amun. Tutankhamun did it, and then following that king, other rulers came back and redid the work. Horemheb did that, and other kings did as well. It's an interesting phenomenon. Having usurped the restorations at Karnak and elsewhere, Horemheb naturally went one step further. Tutankhamun's government had announced, or commemorated its work, in a magnificent decree, a stone stealer proclaiming their accomplishment. This restoration decree is one of the hallmarks from Tutankhamun's reign, I described it in episode 141, but again, what I did not mention is that today, the Restoration Decree does not bear the name of Tutankhamun, instead it names Horemheb. The surviving examples of Tutankhamun's decree all show evidence for usurpation. The cartouches that once said Neb Keperura Tutankhamun now read Joza Keperura Horemheb. The figures of Tutankhamun are changed to those of Horemheb, and as a result, Tutankhamun's restoration decree is now Horemheb's restoration decree. This was the ultimate claim. After taking over the monuments and images of his predecessor, Horemheb took the credit for all the work done in that reign. For the next 3,000 years, history would record Horemheb, not Tutankhamun, as the one who restored the temples. Only with the deciphering of hieroglyphs 
and the investigation of scholars, did the truth return to the light. So, Horemheb claimed all of Tutankhamun's work. Well, sorry, not quite all of it. There are exceptions to this rule. A few places survive where Horemheb did not usurp Tutankhamun's monuments. For example, Karnak's eighth pylon had two large scenes, commissioned by Tutankhamun. On the pylon's towers, the boy king had left grand images of Amun and his sacred boats. Well, Horemheb usurped one of those scenes, recarving some parts and adding his name in place of Tutankhamun's. The other scene, though, he left alone. As a result, the eighth pylon would show Horemheb and Tutankhamun side by side. This is a curious exception. Perhaps it belongs to the earlier phase of Horemheb's reign, when he was still acknowledging and honouring Tutankhamun. Alternatively, perhaps Horemheb's usurpation was not total. We have many examples of Horemheb claiming his predecessor's monuments. But perhaps he didn't actually take over all of them. But over the years, perhaps we've lost many examples where he left Tutankhamun alone. It's impossible to say, but the fact that Karnak's eighth pylon, an extremely visible monument, still has an image of Tutankhamun, that suggests, tentatively, that Horemheb was mixed in his approach. Perhaps he claimed most of Tutankhamun's work, but not all of it. Again, we can only speculate, but it is curious. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Horemheb's usurpations, and his reuse of building materials, like the Talatat blocks of Akhenaten, gets a lot of press coverage. You can easily see why. Horemheb took power some 15 years after Akhenaten's death, so historians naturally view his policies and decisions in that context. But we should remember that Horemheb was not the first ruler to demolish the buildings of his predecessors, nor was he the first to usurp monuments, claiming them for his own. Earlier kings had done this, future kings would as well. So for a moment, let's put the Amarna period to the side, and view this in the big picture. Before Horemheb, several big-name rulers had pursued similar projects, Amun-Hotep III, for example, had demolished a shrine of Senusaret I. He had taken the famous White Chapel and used the bricks for that monument 
in his third pylon. Amonhotep's motivations here are still uncertain. We can speculate in different directions. Maybe the shrine was in the way, or maybe Amonhotep needed the masonry. Or maybe it was an act of piety, a way of incorporating his famous predecessor into a new monument. I have covered Amonhotep III and the White Chapel of Senusaret I in previous episodes. But you can see a parallel between Amunhotep's work and that of Hormheb. Amunhotep demolished an entire monument belonging to a predecessor, and he used it to build a pylon. Hormheb did the same thing. Granted, Hormheb seems to have demolished more structures than Amunhotep, but to be fair, Karnak became a lot more crowded during Amunhotep's reign. By the time Hormheb took power, there were more opportunities to borrow masonry, and probably there was also less space, less physical area in which to build. Those constraints might have encouraged additional demolition. So Amunhotep III deconstructed a fairly significant chapel, the White Chapel of Senusaret I. He used the bricks from that monument to build his pylons. It's possible that Hormheb was simply following that example. Another important case would be Tutmose III. That ruler had demolished and usurped several monuments belonging to his predecessor, King Hatshepsut. About 20 years after Hatshepsut died, Tutmose began dismantling some of her monuments. Hatshepsut's Red Chapel, for instance, came down brick by brick, and Tutmose used the blocks of that chapel for other monuments. Simultaneously, Tutmose's agents erased many of Hatshepsut's cartouches. They chiseled away her name wherever it appeared. That is an even stronger parallel for Horemheb. Having taken power in the wake of an unorthodox reign, Tutmose suppressed the memory of his predecessor, and demolitions, or erasures, were part of that process. However, it's important to note that Egyptologists' ideas around that project have changed significantly over the years. Once upon a time, historians thought that Tutmose III hated Hatshepsut for usurping his power. Now, scholars see a variety of motivations in Tutmose's actions. Again, I have covered all that previously. But long story short, Tutmose may have suppressed the memory of Hatshepsut to bolster the authority and legitimacy of his regime. His side of the royal family may have struggled against her side, and the king could have erased Hatshepsut as part of that struggle. This is relevant for Hormheb, because he was in a similar position. Hormheb's regime also may have struggled to establish or bolster its legitimacy. With no family ties to the royal house, Hormheb may have taken extreme measures to guarantee his authority. The suppression of Akhenaten, Ai, and Tutankhamun might fit into that process. I'll come back to this in a moment when we discuss Horemheb's motives, but it's worth remembering. Other pharaohs had dismantled the monuments of their predecessors. Other pharaohs had erased the cartouches of their predecessors. 
their motivations are equally hard to identify. And were it not for the whole Amana angle, we might not give Horemheb's deeds a second thought. Because he ruled in the shadow of Akhenaten's reforms, Horemheb's actions come under greater scrutiny. But that doesn't mean his motivations were automatically different from Tutmos III or Amunhotep III. Perhaps, faced with the challenges of rule, Horemheb did what many leaders have done throughout history. He suppressed the memory or legacy of controversial regimes to bolster his claim to power. So, Horemheb has a complicated history with the Amarna period. In the early years of his reign, the new king launched a conventional building program. He commissioned those great pylons at Karnak, and he honoured the legacy of Tutankhamun. Fair enough, that was good and proper. But to build his pylons, royal agents would ultimately deconstruct temples of Akhenaten, and they would take blocks from other, possibly defunct monuments. As a result, Horemheb's work includes masonry of Akhenaten, Amunhotep III, Senusaret I, Ai, and Tutankhamun. Putting this all together, you may be wondering, if Horemheb took blocks from all those other kings, why do we mainly talk about Akhenaten? Why don't we talk about the other ones more often? There are two reasons for this. First, the Akhenaten blocks are by far the most numerous. The Talatat bricks recovered from Horemheb's pylons number almost 50,000. Compared to that, the other kings are barely a statistic, so the sheer number of blocks make Akhenaten's monuments more noteworthy. Secondly, the blocks from the earlier kings, like Amunhotep or Senusaret, seem to be more disparate. There are a few blocks from one monument, a couple from another, but nothing truly substantial. By comparison, the blocks of Akhenaten are quite comprehensive. Scholars can collect them and reconstruct the scenes and huge parts of the masonry. With that in mind, we can say that Horemheb's agents purposely demolished Akhenaten's temples. But for the other kings, they may simply have taken bricks that had collapsed from the shrines, or they took down structures that were already half-demolished. So historians focus on the Akhenaten blocks simply because they are more numerous, and they seem to include more of his actual temples. By contrast, the earlier kings are just there, a collection of bric-a-brac added to the pylons. Nevertheless, I think it is a shame that we do focus on Akhenaten as much as we do. Horemheb's policies are more complicated than they seem, and if we only talk about the Akhenaten Talatat, our view of this reign is incomplete. Horemheb's relationship with the past is complex. On the one hand, he was an outwardly pious and respectful ruler. He continued the restoration project that started in Tutankhamun's reign. And for the most part, he pretty much finished that job. By the time he died, almost every monument that Tutankhamun had started repairing was now officially done. In that sense, Horemheb's government and especially his masons, deserve due credit. However, the king also has a difficult relationship with his predecessors. 
The clearest example here is Tutankhamun. Early in his reign, Horemheb associated himself with the boy king, and he treated him respectfully. But later, Horemheb decided to replace him. The new king usurped Tutankhamun's monuments. He usurped his restorations. He even usurped his decrees. It seems like Horemheb tried to replace Tutankhamun with himself. That is far more negative. But even then, some monuments of Tutankhamun remained intact, unchanged. As a result, Horemheb usurped most of the monuments constructed by Tutankhamun and by King Ai, but he didn't usurp all of them. It seems like Horemheb's attitudes changed over the years. For some reason, the king started with a respectful approach to his predecessors. Then he flipped, resulting in the near-total usurpation we see today. Why did Horemheb do this? Horemheb's motives are uncertain. He did not leave a diary listing his ideas. But there are a couple of possibilities. First, I wonder if Horemheb usurped these monuments from a sense of self-righteousness. What I mean is, perhaps Horemheb replaced the names of Tutankhamun and I because he felt that he deserved it. Horemheb had been one of the top officials in Tutankhamun's regime. In fact, he may have been the top official, depending on your view. Either way, Horemheb had been extremely influential, and he had led many of Tutankhamun's projects. With that in mind, I wonder if Horemheb decided that he deserved to claim these for himself. Under Tutankhamun, Horemheb had led the royal works, and King Ai hadn't really built his own stuff, just added to the monuments of Tutankhamun. Perhaps Horemheb felt that, no, these kings did not deserve the credit. Horemheb should be the one honoured for posterity. It's possible that all of this was simply an exercise in ego and claiming credit. That is one interpretation. Alternatively, Horemheb may have had political motivations. The pharaoh was a newcomer to the royal house. As far as we can prove, Horemheb had no blood or marriage connection with the old royal lineage. So from a certain perspective, his claim to rule was tenuous. Perhaps the new king chose to erase his recent predecessors to bolster his legitimacy. Horemheb usurped or demolished the monuments of Tutankhamun, Ai, and Akhenaten. To varying degrees, Horemheb subdued the memory of these rulers. That means he effectively usurped every pharaoh who had ruled since the days of Amun-Hotep III. It's possible that Horemheb was trying to connect his reign with that of Amun-Hotep. Amun-Hotep III, the glorious shining sun of Egypt, was a big deal. Even 30 years after his death, that king's legacy was everywhere to see. Perhaps Horemheb chose to suppress his recent predecessors, to draw a direct line between himself and Amunhotep III. Again, we can't prove that definitively. Horemheb did not make a specific point of it. But there is some justification for suspecting this. Generations after Horemheb, the kings of Dynasty 19 would look back on this period, and they would present the late 18th dynasty in specific, rather abbreviated terms. 
Kings like Seti I and Ramesses II created monuments that showed lists of earlier rulers. When they made these king lists, they presented Amunhotep III and Horemheb side by side. The king lists of Seti and Ramesses do not include Akhenaten, Tutankhamun, or Ai. Apparently, those later rulers presented Horemheb as the direct successor to Amunhotep III. Everything in between their reigns was quietly ignored. So we can't prove that Horemheb wanted to make that connection, but it's quite possible based on later evidence. The new pharaoh, seeking to bolster his legitimacy, may have decided that the best path was to associate himself with an illustrious predecessor. Horemheb may have suppressed the names of Ai, Tutankhamun, and Akhenaten so that his monuments could stand side by side with Amunhotep. Ultimately, all of those are potential explanations. It is hard to say whether Horemheb was aiming for personal glory, political legitimacy, or greater legacy. Maybe he was going for all of them. Perhaps his need to secure authority was born of anxiety, or perhaps ego, a sense of entitlement, that drove him to claim association with Amunhotep III. Again, we can't say for sure. But Horemheb's usurpations, or his re-restorations, if you're feeling charitable, tell us something about his regime. At the very least, the new pharaoh sought to build his legacy atop those of his predecessors. He claimed their monuments for his own, and even if he had some personal justification, the effect is clear. Horemheb was rewriting history. The Amarna period would vanish, subsumed by his glorious monuments. Over time, the people would forget Akhenaten, Tutankhamun, and I. They would remember Horemheb, and his name would stand side by side with Amunhotep III. Throughout his reign, Horemheb's policies changed and evolved. At the start, he was conventional and respectful. By the end, his builders were hastily, and sometimes lazily, replacing his predecessors entirely. By the time he died, Horemheb had usurped most of the monuments belonging to King Tutankhamun. He had destroyed the monuments of Akhenaten, or at least the monuments at Karnak. He had even used monuments from great rulers like Amunhotep III and Senusaret I. His motivations are a bit uncertain, but the outcome is clear. Subsequent generations would view Horemheb as the first legitimate ruler since Amunhotep III. The Amarna period was totally and irrevocably coming to an end. For our purposes, this marks the end of phase one in our narrative of Horemheb. We have dealt with his accession, his assumption of power, and the justification for that, and we have dealt with his relationship to the recent past. Now, it's time to put that past behind, and see what Horemheb would contribute. 
the king would initiate several distinct projects in the next phase of his career. There would be military actions abroad, some major changes to royal tomb design, and a massive program of reorganization. The country, allegedly, needed firm guidance. Horemheb, the administrator who became a pharaoh, would give them what they needed. That will be phase two, starting very soon. First, I need a little break. It's been a while since I took a holiday, so the podcast will return in three weeks. When we come back, we will visit a town that hasn't appeared in the story for quite some time. A famous town where artists lived and worked while building the royal tombs. In episode 167, we will visit that old dear El Medina, and see how Horemheb's government set it on its path to future greatness. That is episode 167, releasing in three weeks. See you soon! is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic, and then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity? What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs>